Hello, and welcome to Sobercast. We provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in a podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting Sobercast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Also, if you're a member of NA or have friends that are, please tell them about our other podcast, NAPOD. NAPOD features NA speakers and workshops in the same format as Sobercast. We upload a new speaker every day, and it's easy to subscribe by searching for NAPOD, N-A-P-O-D, all one word, on any podcast player app, or go to NAPOD.XYZ if you'd like to listen online. Hope you enjoy the podcast and have a great day. Thank you, Andy. And thanks to the committee and all of you for my being here. I appreciate being invited to come to Alabama for my very first trip. There's a time in my life when I wasn't invited to <coughs> come anywhere, and I'll be getting around to that here in a little bit. My name is Herb, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, everybody. And out in West Texas, where I come from, we give our sobriety dates sometimes. I've enjoyed a day to get to sobriety since... September the 18th, 1975, and, and that's an astonishment in my life, and uh, I just, uh, I didn't know I could get there from here, because a, it, uh, it was a hopeless task when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. I was raised in the years of the Depression and then in the years of World War II, and uh, there was a mood in those days that any man could pull himself up by his bootstraps if he just tried hard enough. <clears throat> With your indulgence, I want to quote a few lines of a poem from Thomas Henley called Invictus. Some of you silver-haired members of the audience may remember it. It goes something like this. Out of the night that covers me, black as a pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. <clears throat> And I was raised on that stuff. You know, that's heavy stuff. And if you're going to believe it and buy into it, then you've got to take yourself very seriously. And so that, that set a direction of my life from boyhood days until I finally found the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. When I was dressing this afternoon, Mary Ellen, my wife, was in the room there, and I said, which tie? Do you think I ought to wear my lawyer-looking tie or my Wallace and Gromit tie? She said, you ought to wear Wallace and Gromit. She said, you took yourself too seriously so, for so darn long. Show them what the program can, has done for you. So this is, this is a bit of fun. In addition to being an alcoholic, I'm a car loser. And I, I tell you that because... <clears throat> wow, I see a few of you identify with that. In my early days of sobriety, which happened to be in Dallas County, Texas, I was taking some meetings, and there was a wonderful speaker from Pasadena named Norm Alfie. And Norm Alfie spoke 100 miles an hour, and he'd stand up here and say, My name is Norm, and I'm an alcoholic and a car loser. And he'd fly off into this weird, wonderful tale of his experience, strength, and hope. And I heard him early, and undoubtedly he told a lot about the shame, the fear, the loneliness of alcoholism, and the recovery through this program. But I didn't hear any of that. I wasn't ready for it. What I did hear was... He kept getting drunk and waking up and wondering where the hell his car was. And I identified with that. Astonishing. It started my first that I could remember. It actually wasn't my car. It was my father's car. I was 15 years old, and since I'd gotten my driver's license to drive some light trucks in World War II, he let me use the car occasionally on Saturday night. And, and one Sunday morning, I was being aroused early on like that. And he said, wake up. Where is my car? I said, I don't know. Isn't it out front? I said, no. Get up and get dressed. And so I jumped up and put on a robe or something over my pajamas. And he put me in my mother's car and he said, let's go find my car. And I'm hungover and I'm befogged and befuddled and I haven't got the least idea where this car is. And I'm thinking, Dallas County isn't too big. Maybe I'll recognize it. <laughs> so we drive, you know, I said, well, go to Smitty's house. I remember we'd gotten together sometime during the night at my friend Smitty. So we go to Smitty's house. No car. And he's getting angry. And I'm saying, no, it was at Pete's house. Could we just drive over to Pete's, you know? And he's driving faster and biting his lip. And as we're driving to Pete's, we pass the Highland Park shopping village on this misty Sunday morning. 
and I look out across that sea of asphalt in the in the shopping center there, and there's one 1939 Ford automobile sitting there, and it was my first spiritual awakening. There it is, Dad. And so he pulled over there and said, get in and drive it home. And I started driving home, and Dad's tailgating me. He's so damn mad. And as we start toward the house, I have a blowout on the car. And I don't know if I'd ever changed a tire before that Sunday morning, but I guarantee you I learned. He pulled up, and he says, get it changed and get it home. And so I get out, and I'm changing that tire. And I'm in my pajamas, and by now people are going to Sunday school and church, and I'm embarrassed as hell. And... uh Anyway, I got it done, and I don't know how long it was before he let me use that car again, but that was the first car I lost, and it was the first in a long series of car losses. The worst came later in my life when I was a businessman, and I'd fly into some town like Huntsville or Houston or whatever, rent a car, and go park it in one of these drive-up and park-and-lock garages, and then go meet the gang for dinner, drinks, or whatever, and come back several hours later after drinking all evening, and wonder, where in the hell, what kind of car did I have? I wouldn't even remember what color it is, you know. And I got a little piece in my hand that says Hertz or Avis or Alamo or something. And I'd start walking those things, just looking for the license plate. And uh, I lost, I was <clears throat> I was married early, and I, I lost uh, my wife's car a few times. I don't know that that was the end of the marriage, but it didn't help any. So I was losing not only my cars, but cars of anybody else that would let me drive them. And I've almost recovered from that, I'm happy to tell you. Came in under a dual bondage. Speaking of dual bondage, I read uh, read in our literature where we come in under a dual bondage of alcohol and self. And we heard a good explanation of that last night by Chuck. And, uh, and that was certainly my story. I listened to him last night thinking I identified with so much of what he was talking about. Here I was, self-directed and self-will, not running riot for heaven's sakes, just thinking that the harder I tried, the more successful I would be. And I really didn't know what kind of success I had in mind. I, I had no particular goals. I just wanted to be good and great and famous and rich and tall. And You know how those things go. So I tried. And, and I was an overachiever. I had the benefit of a wonderful, educated family. So grades came easily to me. I was in a great school system there and. uh Started out in California and then moved to Indiana, but then back to Dallas, and that became home. And so my senior year in high school, I was an officer of the National Honor Society. I was a starting guard on the football team that won the state championship. We filled the Cotton Bowl for our state championship game. I think that's an attendance record for a high school that still stands in the state of Texas. <clears throat> and we were kind of the cock of the walk in Dallas. And... uh I had not started drinking much, but when I did, I overindulged. You know, for an alcoholic, if it's worth doing, it's worth overdoing. And so uh, the, the one thing that saved me for a good while was the fact that I did enjoy playing football, and it was going to pay for my college, which was coming up, because it was uh, it was quite important in those days that, that we trained, and we really did train. I uh, had a number of scholarship offers, and... Went on to SMU because one of our star players in my high school was Doak Walker. Some of you older people may know that name. And Doak had been in the service, come back, and gone to SMU. So we went to SMU and uh, uh, started playing football there. And we would train in the spring and we'd train in the fall. But when the season was over, then it was party time. And uh, I rose to be finally the president of my fraternity. And in those days, if you were going to be ahead of a fraternity, you ought to know how to drink. And I made damn sure that I qualified in that regard. But the drinking didn't take me down because I did have other agenda in mind and tried hard. Well, uh, after I got out of school, I went to work for an oil company. Well, I should say that I went right on through SMU. I'd gone up there at the age of 16 since I'd started school in California. And I went straight through from undergraduate with a business degree and then I got a law degree at SMU. You've heard it before, and I like to say that I was educated beyond my intelligence. I had those degrees before I knew what happened almost. And it was a good thing because I was a good tester, and heaven knows if I'd taken off and either gone to war or gotten out of school and gone to work, I don't know if I'd gotten back or not. But by the time I was 23 years old, I had a couple of degrees under my belt. I, uh, my father had died. And I went to work for an oil company and was studying oil and gas law and working around the southwest there. 
wound up in Midland, Texas. That, that was my first introduction to the far west. And in the 50s, <coughs> Midland and, and the whole of west Texas uh, was suffering a seven-year drought. And uh, kind of like a, a drunk. You don't know you're in the middle of it till it's over. But that seven-year drought, uh, full of dust, and w- what we did, we drank a lot out there. And we had a lot of fun. We'd go rafting down on the <coughs> Rio Grande River. We'd go to Mexico and cross the river, and we'd go skiing in the wintertime. But it seemed like one continuous party. But I, in my mid-twenties, I woke up one day, and I had $1,000 in the bank, <coughs> no emotional involvements. And uh, my mother, my dad had died, but mother was very healthy and, and well-off and in good health in her at her age. So I had always wanted to travel. Allow me to back up. I'm about to tell you I hadn't been anywhere, and that that would be a lie. The summer before my senior year of law school, I had helped entertain a young man from Spain while he was learning the cotton business in Dallas. When he got ready to go home, the summer of 51 it would have been, he said, Herb, why don't you come in and go back home with me? I said, Victor, you're crazy. I just can't just pick up and go to Europe. I don't have any money. He said, you won't need any money. We've arranged for you to be an employee of the cotton company, and we're going to go on a a ship, steamship, back to Europe free. And I said, yeah, but we get to Europe and I'm going to need some money. He said, no, because my family has three homes and we, we party in the home. We don't go out like you do here in the United States. And, you know, uh, with a little help from my mother and uh, not much nudging, I took him up on it. And I think I had 80 or $90 when I headed for Europe. But I spent the summer in Spain that year. They assigned me my own private butler. It was very well-to-do family. And that butler would wait up for us to come in at night with hot milk and cookies. He would help us undress. And by the time we woke up in the morning, our clothes would be laundered, pressed, and laid out for us. And you know, that kind of treatment for a whole summer, that may be why I became an alcoholic. (laughs) I'm telling you, after that, coming back to school, there was just a little bit more than I could handle. Reality was too much for me. But... uh, Anyway, when I worked in the oil business for a couple of years there, I took off to work my way around the world. And I got my seaman's papers as an ordinary seaman, wiper, and mess man. Went to the West Coast expecting to get on one of those freighters and head for the Orient or Australia someplace. But I didn't know anything about unions at that age. And uh, I found out I couldn't get a job going anywhere like that. So I went down and put my name in the crew pool for the Trans-Pacific Yacht Race that they ran every other year from Southern California to Honolulu. And the guy that ran the pool said, I can't believe a guy from Texas wants to work on a sailboat like this. Why? And I said, well, really, I want to work my way around the world, and I thought it would give me a good start. He said, hey, what you want to do is go on this thing. And I looked out over this boat, and it was nothing but a a hull and a deck, and it was a a schooner. He said it was dismasted down in in, uh, Typhoon in Tahiti. And they're rebuilding it, and it's going to be the prettiest yacht in the Pacific. So I got a job with his help from the skipper at 125 a month as a deckhand. And we built that thing from scratch and put in new masts and new rigging and set sail. And I spent about a year on that yacht. It's called the Tevega, and it's still sailing around the world in different parts. And we went to all through the islands of the South Pacific. Three of us jumped ship in New Zealand, and we <coughs> we lumberjacked down there for a while. And... This alcoholism crops up again about that time because at Christmas time, I told the guys I was going into town into Auckland and I'd buy a radio for us and come back with a radio. Well, I got into town and started drinking some of their good Scotch whiskey down there and wound up buying a guitar. And I didn't know a damn thing about a guitar. <laughs> so I, I'm not going to dwell on my drunk log, but there are these little incidents that I feel that uh, maybe help portray this guy who's Ambitious in one sense, and yet uh, loves that that booze and that alcohol, and it gets sidetracked now and then. And uh, uh, later on, I got, uh, well, I was blackjacked down in Havana, and they threw my body down on the jetty for the tide to carry out. And a couple of guys heard me moaning and picked me up and saved me from that fate and carried me aboard ship. And the reason I was blackjacked was I was drunk and in a blackout. I guess you all know what a blackout is. It's where the body goes on vacation and the mind doesn't know where it went. And it's kind of disconcerting when the two are reunited, especially for a lawyer in a courtroom on Monday morning. You know, the good news is I'm not the defendant. The bad news, 
The bad news is I don't know who is. And the judge looks the judge looks down at me and says, Mr. Wales, is your client in the courtroom? I don't know, Your Honor. <laughs> I actually stole that from Doug D. out of Houston, but it's kind of typical of lawyers, and I guarantee you I had my share of blackouts. I had my share of blackouts. Anyway, I got back from that trip around the world. I went on through. I was in Suez when Nasser nationalized the canal. That was exciting, and I was headed for Hungary when the Russians moved in in the October Revolution in Budapest. And so I'm dodging bullets here and there. I, it's astonishing I'm alive to stand before you today. But uh, life is exciting. And, you know, we alcoholics thrive on excitement. The one thing I didn't want to do when I got to AA, for God's sakes, don't bore me to death. Of course, I forgot. All of you guys are just like me, you know. Anyway, got back and I wrote that same oil company from London. And I told them I'd be back broke, unemployed, and go anywhere. And so when I got back, they said, we've got a job waiting for you in Midland, Texas. So I went right back where I left from and got started there. <clears throat> I, a young lady I had known before I left had moved to Midland, and uh, we started dating and uh, got married and started having children. And it seemed like every time there was a crisis in that marriage, there was another child on the way. I used to hear Clancy talk about it. I'd wake up, and there'd be another child at the table. My God. And anyway, uh, in all fairness to her, uh, I started drinking heavily. That's I don't know when I passed that fine gray line. Uh, Dr. Silkworth in the big book talks about restless, irritable, and discontented as hallmarks of our disease. I was restless, irritable, and discontented before I took the first drink in my life. I was ill at ease. I was the youngest child. I wanted to be older. I wanted to be this and that. And so alcohol was a natural for me. I got into the marriage. The marriage was not a comfortable one, I tell you that. I certainly was not a great contributor myself. Things were going downhill, and it looked like every time the marriage was headed for the rocks, she'd announce her pregnancy. And, uh, you know, where did that come from? But, uh, they all look like me, so there's no denial there. It, it's really ironic. I, well, I'm not going to get off into that. Anyway, we we had four children. She was unhappy when... When I left Midland, we moved to Dallas, and I worked for the Merchant family, the oil business there, and they sold it. I went to the West Coast with Richfield Oil, and then Atlantic, the company I'd worked for before, came in and, and merged with Richfield, and I was back in sort of a blind alley. And that first wife was unhappy, wanted to move back to Dallas, so I moved her and the children back to Dallas. I went to New York and took a different career turn with Merrill Lynch, decided to learn the <coughs> securities industry. And I went to New York for the Charm School, the training program up there for 90 days. And by now, I am drinking every day. In fact, I'm drinking more than every day. I know I'm going to be drinking at 5 o'clock. But in New York, I remember I had to have drinks every day at noontime. So we had probably 50 or 60 men in the training program. They'd invite me to go to lunch. I'd say, no, I have business to take care of. And I'd go to Sacrepe or the Weavers or some joint that had a bar. And I would drink those double martinis instead of lunch and then go back and sweat it out to the middle, to the end of the day. And so my drinking was progressing as my career was not. I came back to Dallas and became a stockbroker. The manager of the office was an old friend and, and teammate of mine. And uh, one day he called me and he said, Herb, it's, uh, it hadn't escaped our notice. Every time you go to the men's room, you take your briefcase with you. <laughs> Ah, you're way ahead of me. There's a pint of vodka in that briefcase. And that's what I was doing to get through the morning until noontime. At noontime, I would take off and go to lunch, and I might not return, or I might come back about half squacked. You know, I, I never knew. <coughs> Finally, and things were just about as bad at home. Golly, I, I used to hate to go home in the springtime because the wife would have the boys out raking leaves in those front flower beds, and they'd turn up all these bottles of vodka. Here, I've got a whole hole in here. It's, it's full, you know. And I'd have to listen to that harangue. And one night, the doorbell rang, and it was a process server serving me with divorce papers. And uh, I was my pride was wounded. I really wanted out of the marriage, but I was scared to death. Fear had taken over. You know, uh, fear stalks the alcoholic. And uh, it's that other shoe syndrome. So... I went into the hall closet and I got my bowling ball and my hunting bow and arrows and the things I would need in life. And I, 
and I left the house. And I didn't realize, and they certainly didn't realize, that I would not be seen or heard from again for the next couple of years. I was just angry that day. The process server said, you need to leave the premises and send somebody else back for your clothes. I never sent anybody back for the clothes. That was the first wardrobe I lost. I guess you could call me a wardrobe loser because it happens more than once. But I left the house and I found my drinking friends and I moved in. And about the same time, the boss called me in and fired me. And I said, well, at least give me the dignity and allow me to resign. He said, no, because if you resign, you won't get unemployment compensation. I'm firing you. And he was trying to help me in that respect. And you know, by then the alcoholism had taken so control of my life. Before long, I mean in a matter of a week or two, I could not get my act together enough to go down and claim an unemployment compensation check. You were supposed to fill out a little form showing a couple of places where you'd been to look for work. And God, my mind, I couldn't even think of anything to to fake it. So I was off unemployment compensation. And I, I <clears throat> they say we seek lower companions. Hell, I was a lower companion seeking companionship. <laughs> and I'm going in that, in that helix headed downward. And I wound up tending bar and peddling dope. And that was my life for a while. And this was in my 40s. I'm not a young man at this point. I've got four children across town. And I'm so ashamed of the way I'm living and the fact that I can't send money over for their support that I just couldn't make that phone call. I could not go over for visit. I'm sure the court provided visitation, but hell, I never saw it. And I'd even have guys drive me by the house in their old truck, and I'd slip down just leaving my eyes and look out in the yard and see if I could count them. I had this recurring nightmare that one of them might die. And I'd, I'd wake up and find out months later, somebody'd say, oh, by the way, one of your kids died, and I missed the funeral. And this is ironic. It's the sick brain of the alcoholic because, hell, I'm missing their life on a day-to-day basis, and yet I don't want to miss their funeral. What? There's no rhyme or reason for that. Anyway, I, uh, <clears throat> I continued that life, and I continued to seek out people that would understand me because... Uh, the normal people would ask that inevitable question, why do you drink that way? And, of course, the usual answer was, because of all these problems. If you had the problems I did, you'd drink the way I do. But occasionally there was some inadvertent honesty, and I'd say, I don't know. I just don't know. I didn't know there was a disease of alcoholism, and even had I known it, I would have denied it. Because our disease is delusional. And I was suffering the delusion that if things just got better, I'd quit drinking. Or at least quit drinking so much I wouldn't quit for heaven's sakes. I didn't like people who didn't drink. I didn't trust them. I just ran with a drinking crowd because they were my kind of folks. I worried about that when I came into AA. I told Bob W. I said, gee, I don't want to spend the rest of my life with a bunch of people that don't drink. He said, Herb, they're just like you. They're just not drinking today. And he explained that. But I didn't understand it at first. Also, I wasn't quite ready for Alcoholics Anonymous. It would take 17 trips to jail before I would be softened up enough to to be teachable. And here I was a lawyer. And I used up all of my ability to get myself out on personal recognizance bonds. I used up all of my friends who would sign a bond for me guaranteeing my appearance in court for an arraignment because I would never be sober enough to go to court. I couldn't go in there with a three-day growth of beard and, and vodka or beer all over my breath, so I wouldn't show up. And then a warrant would be out for my arrest. And then that wife I mentioned that I, I had uh, been kicked out of the house but I hadn't been in touch with, she had swore, had warrants sworn out for no child support. And I never knew when I went to jail how many desk warrants would be waiting for me and how long I'd have to stay in jail. And that terrified me. The book in chapter 11 talks about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. They were stalking me at that state of my life. Terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair. And I I suffered all of those. I'd go be thrown into jail, and then when they arraigned me, he'd pull out a list, and I'd think, God, here it comes. And he'd rattle off the other warrants. And he'd give me 10 and 20 and 30 days. Now, I was not a big-time criminal, I'm happy to report. No felony convictions. 
These are all misdemeanors in those days. Drunk and disorderly. You know, the fighting. The, the, the Not many DWIs because they didn't have a car. But, uh, but I would have. I would have. Anyway, I was in and out of that Dallas County Jail. There was one room I felt like it was my own. Except that when I'd get in there, they were overcrowded and you'd sleep on the floor. And I was all the time worried that those children, the two older boys now were teenagers. I mean, they're not tots. Afraid they're going to find out that their dad is alive and a drunk right there in, in Dallas, Texas. And old Bob W. that I mentioned, he was four years sober in the fellowship. And occasionally he'd look me up. He could always find me. And he'd say, Herb, aren't you ready to, for another kind of life? Aren't you ready to give in, throw in the towel? And he always, Bob always looks so happy. He'd come into some damn bar where I'm polishing glasses and just smiling and grinning. And I thought he had brain damage. I thought, God, he drank too long. Because, <laughs> as Mary Ellen put it, I was always so deadly serious. Later, he would say to me, hey, let's take our program seriously and not take ourselves so seriously. But I wasn't ready for that yet. I was just, I was too upset with life and fate, the, the hand that had been dealt to me. And by then, of course, I know that I cannot make it through the day without drinking. And I would have that eternal resolve. The next day, I'm going to put on a tie or a coat or, or go somewhere and get a job so I can start making some money. But the next day, the first thing I'd do when I woke up would be drink a beer or get some vodka. And, and I like vodka and, and bouillon, you know, the bull shot. I thought I was getting my vitamins that way. Uh, but that'd start off the day. And then I'd realize, well, hell, it's too late today. I've already blown it. So that resolve I'd make for tomorrow. And I was always going to do it tomorrow. I have to tell you, the one, the one thing that I'm so grateful to this program for is that you gave me today. Because in those days, I was living with the remorse and guilt of yesterday and the fear of what's coming ahead tomorrow. And I never had today to live. And this is what this program has given me. But anyway, my last two roommates, I, I, by then I was going home with anybody that would take me home with them. And uh, there were a lot of excursions I won't bore you with today. They're just alcoholic events. I stopped to pick up a, a hitchhiker one time. I had a car of a girl I was living with, and, and the guy rear-ended me. And I was drunk, and I thought, oh, my God, they're going to call the police, and here I go back to jail. So I popped a piece of gum in my mouth. I got out of the car, and this man comes up, and he says, We don't have to call the police, do we? Aha. Uh -huh. I got him. I said, Well, I don't know. Anyway, he settled for $400, which I pocketed, and, of course, promptly spent in the bar. But that was the way I was living. My last two roommates, I call them Sutton Dan because they were wonderful guys. And they lived in an old broken-down house with broken windows, Animals would come in out of the cold in the wintertime, and they let me crash on their floor. And I didn't, they had pads on the bedroom floors, and I had the rug in the living room, and that was my home until I broke the code. One night, Dan and Sut came home, and they'd been sharing their stash. They were dealing in marijuana and sharing it with me. And they came home, and I was hiding, drinking out of a half a pint of bottle of vodka that I had hidden from them. And they said, well, you damned old drunk. We shared everything we've had with you, our OD salads. We ate two meals a week in those days. And here you won't even share your, your whiskey with us. It's time for you to get out. And that was when I called Bob W. in the middle of the night. And I said, I don't have anywhere to go. And I'm 44 going on 45 years old. And Bob came and got me. And I guess he put me up for the night. But he says, well, if you have nowhere to live, I guess we ought to go see your mother and see if you could move back in there. Well, my mother is up in her 70s, and she had not heard from me in a couple of years. And I said, I can't go back there. I'm too ashamed. He said, Herb, I've been talking to her every month or so. She's doing fine. She knows you're drunk. But if you're willing to go to AA, I'm sure she'd let you move in. So Bob took me back, and there's, there's no shame like going to one's own mother, you know, 45 years old, asking if she'd put me up and take care of me for a while. And she said, yes, on three conditions. She said, you can't drive my car. I know you don't have a driver's license. And she was right because I'd hit a Dallas policeman in one of my forays, and they took my license for five years. So she said, you can't drive my car. You can't have drugs or alcohol on the premises. I would never allow that in my house. I said, yes, ma'am. And she said, and no cash money.
She said, I've learned that to give cash to a practicing alcoholic is like giving whole blood to a vampire. And I'm not going to let you have my, I'm not going to let you have my cash to kill yourself. And boy, she stuck by that. Later on, she relented a little bit. She, she would give me 55 cents, which was bus fare to get from where she lived to the Preston group. So I could go to meetings. I got bold after a month or so of that and I said, Mother, how about a dollar ten so I can have bus fare to get back home? <laughs> no. She said, if I give you more than a dollar, you'll buy a bottle of wine with it. She said, those are nice people down there, and they'll bring you home. <laughs> and they would, of course. <laughs> so much for my financial independence at that stage of my life. But there were a group there in North Dallas, and they loved, they loved me like you guys love your own right here. Gee whiz. They call mothers every evening. What are you doing tonight, Herb? Nothing. Well, we'll pick you up. What for? Well, we're going to an AA meeting. I said, we went last night. You're going again tonight? I thought we'd heard it all. And they were taking me to meetings. And I was uh, I was absorbing a little bit of that program through, you've heard it, Asmosis, just sitting, occupying a chair. I, I kind of like Chuck said last night, I wasn't looking for a new design for living. I was not looking for a higher power. I didn't have anywhere else to go. That was my social life. But they took me back time and again. And undoubtedly, I began to hear some things. And the second step was working for me. I was not working it. But I was coming, and I was coming too. And eventually, I began to realize that these people have something here. They, they've got something from the, this program. So I began to believe it would work for you. But I didn't dare think it would work for me. Because my case was different. I was unique. And I'd gone too far down the, down the tube. But I kept going back like that. And you know, the book tells us either the compulsion has been removed or it has not. Well, somewhere, this that first sobriety date was April the 8th. I never forget that. And somewhere in the next 30 to 45 days, the compulsion was removed. I woke up one morning and realized I didn't want to drink. I got started brushing my teeth, didn't even think about taking a drink. And I, I realized that I didn't have to have a drink that day. Another fellow, Pete P., had adopted me. He was one of my sponsors. And he had me call him every morning. I said, what for? He said, because you'll start thinking if you don't call me first. So he'd make me call him. I'm what are we going to talk about? And he said, I don't know, but it'll keep you sober. And so I started my day off talking with Pete. And I doubt he'd talk a little bit of program to me. And these guys were trying to do those things to keep me from becoming a victim of my own best design. And so... They picked me up night after night, <clears throat> and that summer, the first thing that came back was my ego, and I got, I got angry again, and righteous, and you know, the state of Texas, by God, has had my driver's license long enough, and I wrote a letter to the Department of Public Safety and sent a copy to the governor that would curl your hair. Bob read that letter, and he said, Wales, if I got a letter like this, you'd never get your license back, so... Anyway, that was that was what came back. It was my ego and, and all of the character defects that I later learned about. Another thing, one of my old bridge partners was trying to make life master, and I was a bridge player. Mother had been a bridge teacher, so I had a good running start at that, and I started playing, praying, play, not praying, <laughs> playing in bridge tournaments instead of going to AA meetings. I'd go to one meeting a week, and I think I went only to open meetings because the Alanons were cute. And I thought, well, you might meet somebody who's destiny, you know. And so with that lifestyle for about a month, you can see what's coming. Uh, I had an experience like Chuck had last night. I went to a going away party, and they were rolling joints, sitting around in a circle, had the incense burning and the candles going, and it was just the right atmosphere. And so we're all taking a little toke, and uh, I'd been to one group that had a little cadre of guys that said, the big book says nothing about marijuana, therefore, it's okay to smoke dope. And that's all I needed to hear. I certainly didn't check it out with the big book. But anyway, I started smoking marijuana, and that colored my judgment and told me I needed a drink now. And so when the rest of the gang went to get a hamburger, I said, I have other business. And I took off and walked to the Greenville Avenue Bar and Grill. I walked in there, and there was a girl sitting at the bar that had a bottle of vodka on the bar. 
And I fell in love with both of them immediately. And I went home with both of them. <clears throat> Neither one lasted too long. The, the vodka ran out first. But uh, anyway, in the meantime, I had made an appointment to take one of my boys fishing. Pete got me to make that, that phone call home and reestablish contact. He said, those children are going to find out their father's alive and feel abandoned if you don't contact them. So I called, and one boy was going to be 15 in September on the 19th. So I made an appointment to take him fishing on the 18th, which coincidentally is my sobriety date. And so Pete came and got me and took me back to the club, and I thought I was the only one in AA who had been out and started drinking again. And that night they gave, they offered desire chips at the end of the meeting, and I was embarrassed to get up from the back row where I always sat and walk all the way up to get a desire chip. And hell, there were seven of us, and I wasn't even unique in that. And so I got the desire chip, and that was on September the 18th of that year. And it was when I began to try to start working the program as it was laid out in the big book. Someone gave me a big book because I never had five dollars. And I, I had Pete, and I had Bob, and David A., David Aronofsky, bless his heart, was a member of that group. He's our former trustee at large that died this past year. And David used to be invited around to the groups in that area to talk about traditions because he was a, a great traditions man. And he called me and said, Herbert, I'm going to pick you up at 7. I'm going to talk about traditions, and you need to hear them. And he'd take me to hear him sit me down on the front row. And David was a man of few words in some, well, in a sense. His, his, for example, his explanation of the twelfth tradition of anonymity. He says, I'll tell you what anonymity is. When the basket comes by at the end of this meeting, you slip a twenty in the basket and make sure the guy next to you doesn't see it. And that was the way he, <coughs> he defined the, the whole traditions. He had very simple explanation. And I thank him for that and I thank my higher power for David in my life because I got a good grounding in in traditions that fall. Now, it's coming on, and, and uh, snowflakes are beginning to fall, and I still haven't gone to work, you may notice. Well, <clears throat> I was too afraid and too ashamed to go downtown. Fear and loneliness had stalked me for so long. And one of my friends in the group found a job where I could go from door to door ringing doorbells and conducting research interviews. It paid $1.68 an hour, which was minimum wage in in those days, and I started ringing those doorbells, and that was my first job. And it gave me some sort of feeling of self-confidence to draw a paycheck. And it, it gave me enough money in, in my pocket because Mother didn't extract anything for rent at home there, and I was able to buy a present for the children for Christmas that year. And uh, long about Christmas time, there was a job advertised in Dallas paper for an oil man in West Texas with one of the major companies. And I dusted off my resume, and I went out to a personnel agency, and I handed it to them. And my <clears throat> my resume read like a dream, because I had been land and legal manager for companies. I had put together the lease play on the North Slope for Ridgefield. I had done exploration work in Australia. And it had that three years of self-employment that we all have, you know, <laughs> that gap. Self-employed. Well... Anyway, no one questioned me too much about that. And, of course, I was I was newly sober when I took that job. It was September of my sobriety date, and I went out to West Texas, back in Midland, by the way, on uh, January the 15th or 16th of 1976, and uh, kind of started life over again. I'll never forget when this man called me and offered me the job. He said, now, we can only start you at 25000 uh, Would that be adequate? And, you know, from $1.68 an hour... I said, I think so. <laughs> I got to Midland, and uh, things began to happen quickly. Fact, a little too quickly for an alcoholic, because another old friend out there had a piece of a small oil company based in Midland, and he said, whatever you're making, I'll double it, because I need somebody with your background, if you think you have this drinking thing under control. Well, I didn't try to correct his grammar on that, but by then I had learned that my only way to stay sober was one day at a time and that I could not do it without the help of a higher power. I wasn't sure what that higher power was, but I knew that it was help keeping me sober. And I was going to meeting in Midland every single night. That was my life. And quite frankly, I was afraid not to go. I don't know how many of you had this experience, but in your early days of sobriety, there's a certain feeling of, 
of comfort and protection when you walk into an AA room. You know, I remember when I first went up to that Preston group in Dallas, I asked the secretary, can they come in here and get you? You know, Howard P. was his name. He said, they never have. And that's all I needed to hear, because I didn't know how many warrants were out for my arrest, and I didn't want to be snatched out on an AA meeting and taken back to jail. These girls sound like they've been there. Anyway, so uh, I was going every every chance I got in Midland, and sometimes I'd, I'd, I'd just uh, either make a sandwich or buy a sandwich at noontime and go to the 710 Club, which was a, the bigger club there in Midland, Texas at the time, and I'd eat lunch. And I'd have that feeling of protection and being safe. Uh, I'm reminded here in the middle of my talk of something that Johnny Harris often closes with. He says, I pray that AA will forever remain a safe harbor for the suffering and never become a showplace for the contented. And, and boy, that's tough. I mean, that's, that's, that's the basics of this thing, what we're here all about. Anyway, I, I was doing that and I was trying to stay sober. And my phone would ring every Sunday morning about 7 o'clock and wake me up. And it was Pete P. calling from Dallas. Hello? What's your primary purpose in life, Herb? Oh, Pete. Stay sober and help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. He said, no, dummy. That's the primary purpose of your group. That's the fifth tradition. What's your primary purpose in life? I said, hell, I don't know. Tell me. He said, look on page 77 of the big book. And he'd hang up on me, you know. Well... I couldn't get back to sleep. I'd have to go find my big book then and read page 77. If any of you are in doubt about what it says, it says our primary purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to ourselves and the fellows about us. And Pete would do that almost every Sunday. Eventually, he told me, he said, you know, this long-distance uh, sponsorship is getting a little expensive. Surely you can find somebody west of the Brazos that's qualified to be your sponsor. And uh, I still had a bit of that arrogance and snobbery about me. I, I don't know, Pete. He said, you look around. The guy you can't stand in meetings is probably the guy you need to have as your sponsor. Because you're more likely to pay attention and hear what he has to tell you. And so I had a lot of good sponsorship. I, I hope you've heard that. In my early months, I needed it. God, I fed on it. My mother was great. She kept her sense of humor. She fed me well. I weighed about 150 when I came in out of the cold to this program. And uh, when I sobered up, when well, I started eating ice cream. I <laughs> Before I started drinking so heavily, there were only two or three brands. There was chocolate and vanilla and maybe strawberry. And then I was had that long drinking career. And when I came out of the cold, there were 31 flavors. It was, it was a whole new world. And I substituted that addiction. And my waistline began to expand in the same ratio. Uh, going to 710 there, a little of the wreckage of the past caught up with me. That damn Bill Wilson, he uses these absolutes. We were talking about that out at the space station this morning. You know, we're entirely ready to have him re- remove all these defects of character, you know. And I'm thinking, why couldn't he have said most of them? There are a few you're not ready to part with. And a little of the wreckage of my past caught up with me in the form. I'd just gotten a six-months chip, and I got a call from the sheriff, county sheriff in Midland. He said, Herb, you better come down. There's a felony warrant for grand theft out of Dallas for you. I said, that can't be me. Hell, I've been sober six months. <laughs> and he said, it's you, all right. Come on down. And sure enough, and I won't get off into what it was, I would, the alcoholic in me tells you it's a horrible mistake. But the truth is, it was some wreckage I had never tried to do anything about. And God found it necessary that I deal with that. And that felony indictment of grand theft hung over my head for 18 months. And I'm going to take you forward a couple of events in my life that were very important. The lesser of which, after I had a year of sobriety, I was elected treasurer of the 710 group with a felony indictment for theft hanging over my head. Where else can that happen but Alcoholics Anonymous, you know? Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? And then and then in the meantime, I had met a lovely blonde who had come in out of the cold. She had moved to Midland from Houston, named Mary Ellen. And uh, she started coming to the 710 group. And I started trying to make her acquaintance and make her feel at home in Alcoholics Anonymous. And 
the old timers and the sponsors were saying, Wales, you leave the new women alone. They need a chance to, to sober up. Quit, quit bugging her. And, uh, so Mary Ellen and I became friends. And we listened to tapes together. And usually it was in groups. It was not just one-on-one. But we became pals. And then later that fall, things got a little more serious. The chemistry began to work. Her sponsor got very nervous because Mary Ellen had about seven months at that time. And when she had eight months of sobriety, bless her heart, in a weak woman, she agreed to marry me and did. So, and she's made me promise I would not ask her to stand up here today, but she is in the audience, and I hope some of you will get a chance to meet her throughout. We'll be here all weekend. But it was one of those AA marriages, and I think that uh, the thing we had going for us, we both had very strong sponsorship, and we did not meddle in each other's program. We didn't try to sponsor each other. In fact, she wouldn't even ride to the meeting with you. Here we are going to the same group, but she'd go in her own car. And and with good reason. Hell, she had a lot of anger, and if she wanted to get up in the middle of the meeting and walk out, she'd do that, and she wouldn't have to worry about her damn husband and the appearance of it all, you know. So we started that way. And uh, in West Texas, they have they have strong, strong AA. Uh, some of our speakers refer to pockets of enthusiasm of AA around the country. And I found an awful lot of them. I've told my new friends here in Alabama that it reminds me of Kentucky and Arkansas. I love to go to those places because I feel like I'm at home. I may not know a soul, but the warmth and the love that's there, and I've been shown the same thing since I got here, is just you've got a whole new uh, family around the world when you join this fellowship. And to try to tell that to a newcomer is very difficult. But anyway, I was I was welcomed in West Texas. Uh, one Sunday, I heard there was going to be a district meeting over in Odessa, which is only about 20 miles away or something. I went over to the district meeting, and they were GSRs from all the groups in about five counties there. And they were taking care of some business of taking meetings into jails and what have you. And I came back to 710, and at our group conscience meeting, I said, who is our GSR? And they looked, pointed at you, and said, you are me. And that was the election. You know, hell, nobody wanted to be GSR. And so when I showed the least interest, I became the GSR for the 710 group. And uh, so I started attending district meetings and going to area assemblies. And the reason being that Pete and David A. were strong in area service work. And they said, hey, how many times can you work through the steps, which are self-oriented? You can go through the 12 steps of personal recovery for the rest of your life, but you need the traditions and the 12 concepts to get you out of self in the program and to carry that message beyond your group level. So you go to other groups and you be of service there. And I didn't understand it so much in Dallas, but when I was elected GSR, I did because they started putting me on committees and expecting me to work for God's sakes. Work for AA, of course. And I loved it. And I met new friends in other towns. And I kept going to these things. I remember one <clears throat> one time we had Frank Mauser, another great member of AA, the archivist. Uh, Frank died this past year. But Frank came out to speak to our area assembly. And when I was taking him to the airport, they elected me treasurer. And that was particularly ironic because I had just gone broke in the oil business. I had no secretary. I didn't have a typewriter and I didn't know how to type. So they elected me area secretary. And that's how AA works. When God has a job in mind for you, you may not think you're equipped, but that you're going to get it, and then you just do the best you can with it. And later from that, I was elected delegate from West Texas to the General Service Conference. And I have to tell you, in all of my AA experiences, nothing has had its effect on me like being a member of the General Service Conference, one of awe and one of true humility. Uh, in the back of our big book, in the spiritual experience, Father Ed Dowling talks about AA is natural. He says it's natural where nature meets the supernatural. And that's first through humiliation and then humility. And I, I experienced that because there were 91 delegates from all of the United States and Canada there. I went up the first year as a freshman and sat on the floor and heard AA business around the world being discussed and being called on to vote, to vote my conscience for the good of the fellowship. 
and it was awe-inspiring. I went back for my second year because it's a two-year term, and Mary Ellen went with me that year. She could not attend the conference because only those members of the conference can attend the meetings, but we always have the meetings after the meetings in New York, a lot of ice cream and a lot of coffee and a lot of fellowship. And that year, by the luck of the draw, my name came up as delegate chairman, and I had the pleasure of chairing the delegate-only meeting. John Bragg was retiring as general manager of the General Service Office, and Gordon Patrick was retiring as chairman of the Board of Trustees. So we were looking at a whole new uh, set of servants at that level. And uh, I brought a card with Mary Ellen's help, a going away card for John Bragg, and some of the delegates said, no, that's not enough. Let's get him a present. And everybody cheered and passed the hat, and they collected $286. And we were meeting morning, noon, and night, so Mary Ellen and I don't remember who was with us, uh, we jumped in a cab at noon one day and went down. I found out that John Bragg was retiring on his yacht so we went down to a marine shop and found a Chelsea striking clock on sale. It was a $380 clock on sale for 260 plus tax came to about 286 Just exactly what we had, a little left over for the card. And God was at work. And so they packaged up that Chelsea striking clock to strike the hours and took it back and presented it to John on the, on the farewell breakfast on Saturday morning. If I may back up, the first year up there, they took all the delegates out to Stepping Stones, where Bill and Lois lived in Bedford uh, Hills out there. And we got to go through Stepping Stones. Lois was there that afternoon. It was her last year alive. And I got to sit down on the couch and visit with Lois Wilson for a little bit. And uh, when I went back the next year, Lois had died. And a very happy woman. Lois always thought that she was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous because she helped get it started. And many of you that know the history know, Bill used to go out and get the drunks, and then he'd bring them home. And it would be up to Lois to feed them and love them. And she felt like she and Bill had got it started. And uh, Mary Ellen and I have done our share of that. Uh, we began to think twice about it after uh, she'd gotten a girl out of jail and brought her home. And one day we came home, the girl was gone, and so was all of her underwear. Now, I, I don't know what there is about that, but it's the truth. And so... So when I talk to people, I suggest put them up in a motel. Don't bring them into your house, you know. But uh, anyway, uh, I've had a lot of experiences in AA. I can't read my clock. I don't want to talk past 6 o'clock for sure. <laughs> but it, uh, it gave me a new life that I didn't dream existed, you know. And uh, my maintenance today is primarily on what we call the maintenance steps, 10, 11, and 12. And uh, the big book tells us, once we've been sober a while, to beware of selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. And selfishness is wanting my way every day, today. And uh, dishonesty is, I'll tell you most anything, to get my way. That's our manipulative nature, mine. And resentment is because I didn't get my way yesterday. And fear is I won't get my way tomorrow. So these are things that constantly plague the sober alcoholic, at least I only speak for myself. But in sharing with you people, I hear that you have the same problems I do. I'm not likely to run out and grab a bottle of beer or a bottle of whiskey this afternoon, but I can nurse a resentment uh, in a New York minute. I'm a sensitive alcoholic. Anybody else sensitive in this room? <laughs> oh, there's one back there, I see. Anyway, uh, so... What happened was that uh, we took the alcoholic out of the way and we left the ism, and the ism is here to be treated. It'll never be cured, but it can damn sure be kept under control with a way of life that demands rigorous honesty. I don't always give it rigorous honesty, but it's demanded. I do try to start my day off by communicating with a power that I've learned through you people, a power that I choose to call God and ask for good orderly direction. You know, like it says in the 11th step, I pray only for the knowledge of his will for me and the power to carry that out. I love that page 45 in We Agnostics because that's what I was when I came to you. It says where and how to find a power that could do for us what we could not do for ourselves. That's what this book is all about. And it goes on the next paragraph and says, and of course we will be talking about God. Boy, that jumped out at me. 
I thought, oh, I don't know about that. But they put my fears to rest and reminded me that AA was all over the world. The big book is published in 35 or 37 languages now, and it's in every civilized nation on this earth. And what a, what a wonderful thing to start with a stockbroker and a proctologist, you know, in 1935, that found each other through an act of absolute uh, divine coincidence and were able to start this fellowship. And then people like you and I are the recipients of it. And uh, I can't imagine what my life, if there had been any at all, would have been like if I had not found you. Because it was one of absolute uh, demoralization. You know, I, I just... I couldn't know what was wrong with me, and I couldn't find, figure a way to get out of it. And even when I got in AA, I kept saying, well, look, <clears throat> I'm going to get my problems taken care of, and then I'll stop drinking. And they explained to me I had it backwards, that if I ever wanted those problems to be resolved, I needed to stop drinking first. And when I stopped drinking, I thought I would graduate from AA. And they said, no, when you stop drinking, now we can start your program, because your program is how to stay sober one day at a time. And so, with that kind of loving, uh, I couldn't miss, I think. And my only responsibility today is to try to share that in any way I can. And how I don't, I don't know how I'm going to be of service tomorrow because I don't know what God has in store for me. I have a, I have a law practice here in Midland now. When the oil business went bad and we went broke, I talked to Mary Ellen and she said, you know, why don't you go ahead and practice law again? And I was scared to death. I was scared to death. I said, I don't know if I can do that. And I talked to some other lawyers in Midland. They encouraged me. said, look, we've got all the form books. We've got all the textbooks. We've got everything you need. We will help you. And the community rose up to help one poor recovering alcoholic <coughs> regain his law practice where I'd started so many years before. And to this day, I still take my court appointments because I feel like and it's not a coincidence that the judges usually appoint me on cases that involve alcohol and drug abuse. And we've got plenty of it, like I'm sure your community does. And it does give me an opportunity to talk to a guy who's in desperate straits, and I can look him in the eye and say, I understand. And that's the secret of AA, how one drunk can help another. Because only we can say to that person, I understand. We're not talking theory, because we've been there. I would be remiss in closing if I didn't mention that Mary Ellen and I have a burgeoning family. I mentioned I had the four children by the first marriage who remained in Dallas with their mother for a while. Mary Ellen had two boys from her first marriage. And then several of mine came out to live with us later. And in the early 80s, in 1983, her younger sister died an untimely death of death cancer. And then her husband died a year later. He was 42, and they left two little boys. And... Since Mary Ellen was from Montreal, she and her sister were the only ones in this part of the world. We were the natural parents to take those two boys in and raise them. And uh, so we did, and we have eight kids now that call us mom and dad. And I was like W.C. Fields. I didn't care much for kids or dogs, and now I'm up to my ass in both of them. And, uh, <laughs> I got This being a program, honestly, before I sit down, I must tell you that we finally got them all out of the nest after years of parenting and, whew, you know, and so <clears throat> here last fall, Mary Ellen said, you know, Herb, Andrew, he's our youngest. He's the youngest adopted. He was seven when he, when he lost his parents and Andrew's now 21. She said, Andrew needs to move in with us. He get redirected. He's not doing too well in school and he lost his job. And I said, I don't know. And of course, it's selfishness and self-centeredness that root all my problem that makes me restrain, you know. I color it with, well, I don't want to be an enabler or some crap like that. But, but the fact was, I didn't want to be inconvenienced. But I, I said, okay, Andrew, now just because you're moving in, that doesn't mean we're going back in the parenting business. We've had all of that. And so he's moved in and he is really a good kid. We've agreed that of the, of the eight, He's probably the nicest. God took pity, knowing my age and whatnot, on on giving us a really nice guy that last one. But he's lazy as hell. And it, it rankles me. Here I am in my 60s to get up and head for work in the morning, and he's still in bed getting his rest. <laughs> but anyway, that's the hand that, that we're, we're dealt, and we love it. We love it. Because 
this program gave us God, it gave us each other, and it gave us a loving family and an extended family. And I cannot thank you enough for the opportunity to come and meet all of you and to be your your guest. And I'm honored to be it for the rest of the weekend. I look forward to seeing you all. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.